Do you love fashion? Do you love getting compliments on how well you're dressed? Are you always seeking the latest trends? Then we're talking to you. BostonProper.com is your fashion destination and the only place to go for all those nods, head turns, and new styles. No matter the day, season, or occasion, Boston Proper has what you're looking for. Sophisticated, confident clothing designed to flatter and get noticed. So visit BostonProper.com now and start creating your perfect wardrobe. Boston Proper. Wear it like no one else. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. I've always had smarts from the start I'm not gonna hold it against you Like some people I know My inventor My name's Jamie Loftus And you are listening to episode 4 of My Year in Mensa The podcast that is about what the title of the podcast is is. If this is your first time listening, this is the last episode, so you probably will want to go back to the beginning and start from there to understand uh, everything that's going on. And for those of you that have been on this journey, welcome to the end. What will happen next? Will we ever reach any manner of conclusion? All things that we will be finding out today. So since this is the last episode, I think I will go off on a tangent a little bit at the beginning and just say how nervous I am to release this because I am making a podcast about a very reactionary group. It stands to reason that there will be a reaction to the thing that I'm making. A criticism frequently thrown at me for writing about Mensa and now podding, if you will, is that I'm doing it for reputation or financial gain. And, you know, I'm glad that people find the writing and reporting interesting. And to critics of that, I mean, I don't really know what to say. I'm glad people find it interesting. It's interesting to me, too. I've made a total, I believe, of $400 writing about Mensa. Yeah, I wrote four articles and made $100 per article and then proceeded to spend way more than that in order to attend the Mensa gathering, to get lodging, to eat, to go to San Pedro, gosh, so many things, Uh, to pay member registration fees, which is almost $100 two times because I passed the year mark and I had to get, I had to renew my membership. Uh, I also bought one of those brain pool t-shirts to make myself laugh, but I guess that's more of a personal expense. All that to say, I don't, I'm not, there's no money in this story. I don't even know if people want to hear it. I am trying to finish what I started 
it started as something funny to me and then ended as this bizarre sociological, what the fuck is this? So that is why I'm doing this, is I want to understand what the fuck this is. And as frustrated as it has made many mensons towards me, it turns out there's a fair amount of people that are interested in what the fuck this is who find it confusing. So uh, I guess, I don't know. I mean, I am nervous to release this, but... It's a pod- there's 500 million podcasts, so many of which are about things weirder and worse than this. And so, just going into this last one, uh, if you've been listening the whole time, thank you so much. And, uh, and to, to Menthons who have been listening, I hope that you feel like I'm characterizing people fairly. I know that this is a biased account, it is my account, but I really did try. Nothing's gonna be enough for everyone, but that's enough for me. And so with that, let us go to July 6th, 2019. This is my third day of the Mensa annual gathering. Time-lapse noise? Okay, so I'm at the hospitality cafeteria. It's 2 p.m. and a man who is already very drunk is talking to the woman handing out drinks. And he says, You know, no one wants to be the one to say it, but not all dictators have been bad. And I hate to say it. But Germany was one of them. Okay, and this man does not have the demeanor of someone who hates to say anything. And he disappears as quickly as he got there. I am fucking exhausted. And today is a particularly rough slate of daytime events. From a thoughtful presentation on ADHD, famously featuring the quote, A little ADHD can be charmingly quirky. A lot of ADHD can be a big giant pain in your life. It was a good talk. Then there was the sparsely attended Mensa awards ceremony and what feels like the millionth lukewarm cafeteria lunch served in hospitality. And at this point, I'm subsisting mainly on the free peanut M&Ms. And so for old time's sake, I sit at the pet lover's lunch table again with mostly the same few people and a few of the same women talk about their week and exchange pictures of their cats. I love it. I am unlucky enough to have accidentally sat next to yet another very drunk man. This guy's in his 60s and he's telling me he has some leftover steak in his hotel fridge that he'd love to show me what. When all of a sudden there is Katie once again wearing her MAGA hat and she's excited. My best friend! She invites me over to her lunch table, the firehouse table that I described in episode one that has a cartoon of an owl with its head on fire to mark it. And it does feel weird to be relieved to see someone in a MAGA hat, but this old drunk guy hitting on me to get steak that he admitted he didn't even buy is enough to get me to leave. And so the world is upside down and Katie too and myself are all sitting at the firehouse lunch table together. Katie says that there's a bar crawl going on later that night and that I should be in the lobby by six to go. And I agree to go and continue my afternoon. And sometime in the afternoon, I see Mead Guy in the hallway. Mead Guy, of course, because he is the guy who makes mead. He, at this moment, is dressed head to toe as a pirate. And when he spots me, he literally jogs in the other direction, which is if a man in a a full pirate suit hasn't literally run away from you. Are you even living? So this is the purest interaction I've had all week and in my life. And by early evening, the old drunken fascist is back at the hospitality bar. This time he's talking to a different bartender and he's holding out these fake $3 bills he's printed that have these over-edited caricatures of Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama just printed on a laser jet and willed into reality. And a man with a hoser ribbon walks up to him and kind of jokes, 
So you're a liberal, huh? And the old drunken fascist is laughing and laughing, and he says, Only a Republican could joke about Democrats like this. <laughs> he proceeds to tip the bartender with the forged bill of Hillary Clinton and then disappears for what I hope is forever. I know this man sounds like a fever dream cartoon, but he's out there. So I'm trying to get through the day and I go to the next talk, which is called The Dysfunction of the American Political System. It's being given by a very tired looking professor and the discourse is cringy and offensive and terrible. There was a man who kept raising his hand to insist that slaves being counted as three-fifths of a person is what ruined the American South. And the room gets very riled up at this, rightfully so, and apparently the speaker doesn't have really the historical knowledge to make a very strong argument against this clearly wrong point. And they get into this sparring match. Other people are jumping in to agree with him or loudly disagree with him. And finally, after about 45 minutes of this, people just start to leave. Every person of color and a few others of us, it's just too painful and everyone leaves. Because in many ways, that's where the country is. And also, this is what this event is like. So once everyone's dispersed, I write down all the details of what happened. And while this is not the only racist thing I heard in Phoenix this weekend at the Mensa Annual Gathering, it feels very wrong that I am not at all surprised that there is someone willing to say something so horrible here or that they refuse to engage with anyone in the room in a good faith way. People were offended and upset, but no one seemed surprised. And in the midst of all this, I had missed the departure of the bar crawl. Oh no. So after this upsetting talk completely falls apart, I head out to the front of the hotel to see if maybe the bar crawl is within my line of sight when a man who's holding a few pieces of fruit appears behind me and he says, you're the famous Jamie Loftus. And there's no point in telling him I'm not, so I ask him if he knows where the bar crawl was headed. He instead tells me his name is Kevin and he's a 12-year Mensa member who was ousted from a local position by a young woman I've been in contact with before who is another popular target of Firehouse and of Mensa at large. Kevin's handing the armful of fruit he has to homeless people in the sweltering Phoenix heat as we continue to talk. And it's at this point someone asks me directly, am I going to be writing about this? And I don't really answer, but Kevin is kind and he points me in the direction of the bar crawl saying he's going to a Diamondbacks game and he'll catch me another time. When I get to the bar, I see I've missed the drinking mensons except for one lone hoser at the entrance. And so I decide, you know what, maybe this is it. Maybe I have gotten to know Firehouse as well as I'm going to. I came here, I've spoken to at least a hundred people about how they feel about screenshots from nine months ago, and I am so ready to go home. But just in case, I message too to see whether he's on the bar crawl as well. And he says no, and we agree to meet at a Sheraton trivia event called Name That Movie, so we can watch Senior Mensons loudly identify a litany of military movies that I've never heard of. It's already 7 o'clock at night, and I'm considering going home for a nap when Two leans over and he points at a message on his phone and says, It's from Katie. She's saying they're at the Tilted Kilton to bring you. I peek over his shoulder to look at the message, and it does say, The ladies would love to meet her. 
the sinking feeling of knowing I will go settles as the 5,000th John Goodman movie clip plays on the Name That Movie screen. And in a futile act of resistance, I just say, I can't. And he laughs because he knows that I will and I can. And he says, I know, but like... And and yeah, he finds this a little funny because like it is a little funny in a wanting to die kind of way. I'm about to go to Scottish Hooters to have my ass just handed to me for the 3,000th time in 72 hours for for no reason. For no reason. It just feels like self-harm at this point. I am exhausted. I look like garbage. And I volunteered to do this. So on our way over to Scottish Hooters, I asked too about why he participates in American Mensa Firehouse so consistently when he knows everyone is just gonna pile on him. A typical post from two would be a news item about something horrifically racist, sexist, classist happening in the country captioned with a sarcastic sentence or two that are directly challenging the right-leaning members of the group, asking them to defend their views against whatever story he's attached. I think of it as kind of trolling in the opposite direction. Two does what the rest of Firehouse does, but with a far left-leaning view rather than the opposite. On the same day that we have this conversation, he posts a picture of Katie, him, and myself that Katie insisted we take at lunch that day with the caption, Mensa's Finest. And the photos themselves are another form of trolling. It's just another challenge for people to be annoyed and engaged with a rivalry that doesn't matter. And Tu gets a little defensive at first and says, I don't really post that much. But eventually he agrees that he in fact does, and he admits it does give him kind of a dopamine hit of sorts. He says, I just have to find it funny. And cites how comically opposite Katie's views are from his own. I don't know. Katie, Sam, and the aforementioned girls who would love to meet me wave at Two and I from the entrance to the restaurant. Their table is covered in glasses and fried appetizers, and Katie hugs Two and I and once again declares us her best friends. I actually recognize the woman sitting beside her, who's friendly but more skeptical. She's a beach blonde in her 40s, who I'm going to call Megan, who reminds me a lot of my Trump voting aunt who I can't get myself to break contact off with. And this meal ends up being one of the more productive and confusing few hours in my year in Mensa, name of the podcast. A meal with three drunk right-wing women who genuinely want me to know where they're coming from. Not because they like me, but because they would like for me to write something nice about them. Of course, that's just speculation. Megan says, I want to know what you're going to write. And as she says that, Mead guy, still dressed as a pirate, and a few other people, also dressed as pirates, enter Scottish Hooters. I guess I should say, to be fair, that he was dressed as a pirate for a reason. There was some pirate-related event. I don't know. He wasn't just, he didn't just happen to be dressed as a pirate, but it was very, he was dressed as a pirate. I don't know. But I tell Megan, honestly, I don't know what I'm going to write. One of the pirates interjects to ask me for a selfie and I say, no. I mean, I came here. I'm going to listen to Firehouse as I promised Katie and Two and Amanda and Maggie and God knows how many other strangers that I would. And then I'm going home. But she disregards what I want because fuck what I want and she takes the selfie with the entire table anyways. 
somewhere there is a cursed image of me at Scottish Hooter with a bunch of mints and pirates, and I hate that for myself. But I'm helping myself to Katie's fried pickles appetizer as I talk with her and Megan. And for the first time since I got here, someone in Firehouse tells me about themselves instead of asking me how my AG is going. Who they are is, like many of the people in this very sticky story, more complicated than I could have imagined back in the Pasadena testing room a year ago. Here's a little bit about them. Megan is a married Canadian conservative who joined Mensa when she realized her son is both very intelligent and struggling to fit in at school. She says her reason for joining was as a supportive mom looking for a way to make her son feel like a part of something. And once they signed up, along came Firehouse and the secret Facebook group immediately became a big part of Megan's online life. And she recalls the group schism that led to Mensa Facebook groups being separated with moderated and unmoderated factions in the first place. She hates socialized medicine, but she backs this thought up with an anecdote about how she was struggling to get the surgery she needed under this system for well over a year, which impeded her quality of life and ability to work and parent. She identifies as bisexual, libertarian, and as the creator of the boob thread. And if you don't know what the boob thread is by now, I honestly can't help you. You've got to go back. But she and Katie met on the Firehouse board several years ago and are self-described ride or die ever since. And Megan talks a lot about her beliefs, but doesn't like how she's pigeonholed with labels. She says, I'm not alt-right, but I'm very right. Great. And then there's Katie. Katie is an American from the East Coast who voted for Obama in 2008, then became an increasingly intense conservative following the recession of the late 2000s. She was raised in a poor, often difficult household and joined Mensa back in the mid-90s when an elementary school teacher noticed how well she was doing in school, especially on standardized tests. She originally found it useful to put Mensa on job resumes to supplement the college education her financial background made it impossible to get, and she became an increasingly more active member of Firehouse following Trump's election. She's married now, and in another twist, she's pro-choice, but says she's not extreme and that babies shouldn't be aborted at nine months, which is not an argument I'm aware exists. She says that she's actually seen my stand-up online and laughs when she remembers that she was pissed off when she ended up kind of liking it. Thank you so much. Watch my stand-up online. Anyways, Megan was the first person to welcome Katie to Firehouse, and this is the main time they get to spend together during the year. And while they're telling me this, Megan seems to be warming up to me a little bit too, but with more conditions than Katie. She really wants to know what and if I'm going to write, and I really don't have an answer for her. I feel everyone at the table slowly poking holes in my fragile bubble of remaining patience, and although I have vowed to listen, I find myself speaking up more as the women move on from their life stories into their opinions on Firehouse, me, and the last thing anyone wants to talk about, the state of America. And anytime I do say something, they think my annoyance is very funny. Megan says this at one point when I get frustrated at a comment at the table, and I will remember it forever. You're confusing intelligence with education. So I'm getting worked up, and I'm most of the way through the fried pickles. Talking to Megan and Katie feels like some of the biggest contradictions I have 
ever encountered. They're pro-gay rights, but they're anti-fat people. They're sex positive, but they hate feminism. It's those Menton contradictions that have it always, all the time, all over again. And of course, here I was at Scottish Hooters, realizing that there was more to the people flooding my comments in my life and anxiety. And yet... I bet I've had sex with more girls than you. Megan says this to Two, who is a little too eager to fight back. He says, No way. Helping himself to one of her buffalo wings. And I'm on Megan's side for this one for a second, but then... And you're having worse sex with those man-haters. Katie and Megan do not like feminists. They think that real men respect the women they're with, and that most of the discussion around current feminism amounts to whiny entitlement. They poke at two for self-identifying as a feminist, and they say there's nothing less sexy than that. I'm not drinking at this meal as I need every bit of self-control fully with me, but the ladies at the table, the one who is having a conversation with Sam, the pianist who's arrived, is too drunk to really participate. They order one more round before the boob thread comes up again. Megan tells me. That's one of my big issues, honestly, telling people about the boob thread and the screenshots. As the meal continues, it gets increasingly tougher to keep the promise to hold my tongue and simply get to know the Mensons. I have yet to spring to my own defense in any meaningful way other than to repeat that I wasn't there to terrorize the group ad nauseum, and I believe it was the thousandth mention of the screenshots that tested me. Katie hears me out when I remind her that Mensa isn't the first heaping of online abuse I've received as an entertainer, and I feel that I need to take every threat seriously, particularly when I have had no interaction with the commenter at all. This seems to resonate with her, and she repeats that tone is difficult to understand online. Megan is still more leery of this logic, and she continues to push back. And this opens a discussion about past quote-unquote problem members of the group. Problem members being kind of this mensen buzz phrase I've been hearing all week. I mean, there was even a dealing with problem members session officially on the books that I did not have the inner strength to attend. And also, going would have sort of felt like trolling on my part. Anyways, this is what makes me break. I had assured too on the walkover that I had already made it three days without getting in an argument with anyone and that I wasn't going to let any Scottish Hooters discourse be the thing that breaks me. And then Megan and Katie brought up white supremacy. We've had actual real racists in the group before. This is Megan, and she describes a firehouse member who regularly posted racist screeds in the group. As she told it, the members found this too racist and would pile on him for his views, excoriate his arguments, and try to make him feel as uncomfortable being a part of the group as possible. This, she explains, is why she thinks censorship is not a good tactic for any forum. Her logic being... Otherwise, how would Mensa know this person was racist at all? And I ask her, well, did anyone do anything about it? Did he get kicked out of Mensa? And no, this same member somehow managed to get officially booked as an annual gathering speaker. His talk was on, per Megan, The Bell Curve, a controversial parentheses completely disproven book that is constantly cited to justify racist views. As Megan tells it, Firehouse members, including her, made a plan to show up at this guy's talk at the annual gathering and then mass walk out in the middle of it 
in order to humiliate him. And she says that this worked and he was humiliated. And she concludes the story by saying he eventually left American Mensa Firehouse after being blocked and humiliated enough times. She suggests that this and commenting to disagree with his racist posts, instead of removing him or adding a no white supremacists welcome addition to the group's non-policies, was potentially what prevented this member from becoming fully radicalized and taking part in a more violent group. And sure, he eventually left Firehouse after feeling unwelcome enough, but she felt that this experience had a role in changing him for the better. And if you could not follow the logic of that story, we are on the same page. I am not at all sure I understand what she's trying to say. And so I ask, but what did that accomplish? If he left the group, then didn't he probably just go continue to be a white supremacist somewhere else? My head is throbbing at this point, and I want to ask her what any of this has anything to do with what her argument against me specifically is, but she's not done speaking. So you see, problem members do leave the group if they know we don't support what they do. Katie says, drawing a direct line with how the group dealt with a white supremacist to how they dealt with a D-list comedian. And there has been a lot of false equivalents at this table tonight, but this one is too much. Two seems genuinely shocked and he bursts into laughter at the comparison while I am struggling to keep my head attached to my neck. And two is like, Are you serious? And Katie kind of catches the comparison she just made and says, No, no, I didn't mean, I'm obviously not. We're just talking about problem members. She apologizes and she tries to start the anecdote over. But I cannot take this sitting down at Scottish Hooters anymore. So I choke down one last fried pickle and against every better instinct in my very tired body, I fucking debate Mensa. So stupid. Okay. So because I made the critical mistake of debating my own reply guys, reply women, reply people, I'll start with what they get me on. The first is the satire itself. Megan articulated clearly that the group felt this was me punching down at a group of people who were misfits their entire lives and have finally found a community. She also thought I was a little too cutting towards my test proctor in the first piece. And okay, fair. I was bullying dorks and I hadn't considered it from this point of view, even though I thought of it at the time as punching up to a group that paid a fee to declare their superiority over the rest of the world. So yes, that's a viewpoint that I hadn't considered. Point for Mensa. Megan leans over to me at one point and says, You and I, we're able to fake it. I mean, we're unusual, but you're smart and you're pretty and you're able to be around people and fake it. Not everyone in Mensa is like that. First of all, thank you so much for calling me pretty. But Megan makes references to members of the group that are socially awkward and some who are on the spectrum and others who identify as lifelong misfits. And she has this to say about the guy who issued the now infamous in-group death threat. He's the nicest guy in the world in person and that's how he jokes. And I ask, how was I supposed to know that threatening a stranger is how he jokes? And Megan says, I understand. But she continues to defend his right to do so. Another point they get me on is the group's impression that I was trying to get them doxxed 
and attacked with my tweets, something that I have to be sympathetic to because the same thing has happened to me, although with more explicit instructions to harass. I was never asking anyone to find these people and bother them. If you're coming after my friends, I'm gonna block you. That simple. And the second you talked about the boob thread, I blocked you right away because I can't have people posting on that getting doxxed. Again, I repeat to her that I didn't intend to dox people by posting screenshots that were insults and threats against me and hadn't done so since those original tweets. And again, I repeat that I felt that once threats, insults, hate speech come into the equation, the question of whether someone's identity should be protected becomes obscured for me. And again, we disagree. So they close the tab at Scottish Hooters, and Megan and I continue to have a heated debate into the street, at one point getting so involved that we walked a half a block away from the main group in the opposite direction. And it's a respectful conversation for the most part, but it is very intense. She challenges me. If you felt so threatened, why didn't you report it to the police or Facebook? And I say, well, I talked to the organization that's in charge of Firehouse directly. I thought they might do something. And Megan shrugs at this, the implication being that since nothing was done, that's evidence that there was no harm done in the first place, and not just systemic not giving a fuck. The subject of our conversation switches to the unmoderated elements of Firehouse. Megan is, as expected, a fierce defender of the unmoderated nature of the group, repeating the, if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen creed among people who have expressed frustration at the group's persistence. I don't believe in censorship. She repeats a number of times. So I push back and say, isn't having everyone in the group block one person censoring the group though? And at this point, we are all standing in front of a theater complex. Katie is drunkenly humping a statue and two is taking pictures of it. And Megan and I are still trying to have this conversation. And in another dimension, two and Katie are soulmates, weirdly. But in spite of, or maybe because of the humping, I continue the conversation with Megan and say, the way I see it, the threat is a threat. And saying that I should have to read into the tone or personal history of the person making a threat is kind of asking a lot. And Megan comes right back with, well, you didn't get to know us. Katie is hanging from a statue. And I say, my introduction to this group was getting tagged and an insult. Why the fuck would I want to know people in a group that would do that? And, and Megan considers this and says, that is unfortunate. She then mentions a few strategies I could employ to have people in Firehouse begin to unblock me, including a public apology, a public vow to never release any manner of screenshot ever again with names blocked or not, and a number of other apologies I could make in order to participate in this community that many people have started to assume I am eager to reconcile with. And I say, besides, you guys are always talking about free speech when I was making jokes and being critical and trying to hold people accountable for shitty things they were saying. And at this point, we have reached an impasse and we are finally at the door of the Sheraton Grand for the final Mensa official Great Gatsby 1920s dance. Megan, Katie, and the MAGA crew hug me goodbye and say they'll see me at the dance, but I have no intention of staying more than like 10 minutes. 
my head hurts and my legs hurt and I'm dying of heat stroke and I should not have come here. Two, who's a former journalist himself, seems just as drained by the dinner as I am and says he might write something himself. The arguments Megan and Katie made defending their community felt just as contradictory as the people themselves. Firehouse was a haven for the socially awkward, but also a place for the socially awkward to threaten people freely. Firehouse was uncensored, except for the people they didn't like, who would be censored to the point of complete silence to those in the group with influence. We go into the dance for a minute, and it's early hours. There's a few middle-aged couples who dance to celebration in the center of the room, and a few immaculately dressed younger couples who are flocked around the photo booth. Two says, I'm not much of a dance guy. And he looks down at, like, the basketball shorts he's wearing. I say, me either, and have him snap a quick picture and get ready to leave. One of the couples in Gen Y who had brought me up to the firehouse suite my first nighter there, and they're once again wearing matching outfits. You're coming in the booth, aren't you? The guy who's close to my age asks, and he insists that we get a few shots of them with the oversized props in the booth. We leave the room, and my final confrontation of the evening follows me out of the ballroom and into the hallway. And this is Sarah, the girlfriend of the hoser who I'd spoken to the night my phone got kamikazied. If you don't remember who that is, honestly... No big deal. She was also the woman who had, I thought, the best points on abortion rights in the debate room that same day. And honestly, I am too tired for this level of nuance in a person at this point. And she says, are you leaving? Are you sure? I can make sure your request gets straight to the DJ. She tells me that she really hopes I had a good time and that I'll come back the next year. I hug two goodbye, go upstairs to get my final fistful of free M&Ms, and finally... Mercifully, I go home. Some final thoughts on my year in Mensa, both the podcast and the reality. So it was uh, really fucking hard to arrive at anything conclusive about, dare I say, my year in Mensa because there's a very silly performative conclusion I could get to or there's a more nuanced kind of overly sympathetic conclusion I could get to and I don't want to get to either. So I'm going to do my best. I can't guarantee that my feelings won't change later and either way, you don't really have to care. Here's as close as I've gotten to conclusive thoughts. And actually, I'm going to start with a quick apology because there is one apology that I feel I owe sincerely, and that is to the boob thread. As a militant feminist myself, it was rude and out of line for me to disclose the concept of the boob thread to the internet at large. And to boob thread members past and present, I regret my condescension and wish all boobs involved health and happiness. I'm sorry, boob thread. I never wanted to feud with the boob thread. Because at the end of the day, Mensa boob thread. And now some actual conclusions. So the last long form kind of story that I want to do is something I've seen before. And maybe you'll recognize it too. It kind of goes like, so... I met these people who have absolutely terrible views on just about everything, and it turns out they're pretty nice. This happens weirdly a lot, making largely toxic and bad groups seem very sympathetic, and that's not how I feel at all. 
and I feel just as opposed to the views of a lot of people in Firehouse as I have from the beginning over a year ago. Many of these views are actively harmful to people I love and are oftentimes actively harmful to me. There's no number of pleasant civil conversations over fried pickles that can change that reality. I can't in good conscience participate in a community like that. Also, I don't really want to. And when I get back from the Mensa conference, it takes me about three days for me to sit down and actually start writing. And by that time, people have, through some divine intervention, started unblocking me on Firehouse. This appears to be connected to the goodwill of Katie, who had been defending me in the group in a number of long comments in Firehouse since the annual gathering ended. There's been one meme that I've been able to see, although I hear there's more, as well as a few discussions of how the group felt interactions with me had gone in person, and that picture of Katie and I from the Mead party that has over 300 comments talking about me one way or the other. And hey, I'm addicted to attention. Oh god, I'm gonna describe the meme because it's an audio medium, but this is gonna sound so fucking lame describing a meme. It's the scene from the end of Dirty Dancing where she's Jennifer Grey and Patrick Swayze are oh this is so embarrassing. Okay, uh he's lifting her, she's like, ah and so I'm Jennifer Grey and Katie's Patrick Swayze. And then the bottom half of the meme, this description is still going, is Jerry Orbach and Susan Sarandon? or maybe it just looks like her and they're like ew and that's labeled American Mensa Firehouse that didn't make any sense it's a it's a fine meme I think very specific very niche really for about a hundred people anyways one user comments you're truly twisting the tail of the dragon by interacting with her at all and he goes on to say that he ensured he was never physically near me for the entire gathering. And with every day that passes, it looks like I'm able to see more posts from more users as the great blocking slowly kind of disbands. The conversation around me has now changed and appears to be a little more split. Certain members feel that I am irredeemable after the perceived doxing and disclosure of the boob thread, and others are willing to, as the narrative has been, give me a second chance. It's been speculated that I will, in my eventual writing on the topic, quote, explain that no one was actually threatening her life and that she gets it now, unquote. Another comment, realistically, if she were able to post an apology, the first thing that would happen is she'd probably get a stream of posts from people venting. Here's a more sympathetic one, quote, once I got to speak with her and understood her perspective and that it was an honest misunderstanding, I put my pitchfork down. Some more comments. We all want to be loved, understood, and appreciated. So good to see. An apology would go a long way as it would demonstrate an understanding that she should not have done what she did. So far, it seems like she's just testing the boundaries of what she can get away with. And this was interesting to watch because I wasn't expecting any of the community to put the pitchfork down. And it was kind of heartening and really confusing. But still, most of the conversation I can see, and as Katie continues to advocate on my behalf, what I can see has expanded, is a request for a formal apology for screenshotting a number of insults and threats towards me without redacting names last October. Sam, who I got to know pretty well during the gathering, posts the selfie he took of a freshly cried out me in the vestibule of the Sheraton on the first night of the gathering, sort of collaged along with images of Winston Churchill, Steven Spielberg, Van Gogh, and, and I'm not kidding, Katie humping that statue. In the caption, he explained his own history with Mensa, mental illness, and his concern that the group is, quote, 
too worried about our image, unquote. He writes, At the end of the day, people in Mensa or Mensa materials will do their shits and change the world, and it's fine we are labeled crazy. He continues, As for leaking our information, using it as your business, Jamie Loftist, I'd not do it anymore if I were you. I'm sure someone in here eats eyeballs, and you have beautiful eyes. Ah yes, another one of those hilarious jokes. And this post is generally kind, if a little weirdly threatening at the end. But I can't say I agree with Sam that Mensa is too worried about its image. Because it absolutely should be worried about how it presents to other people. And the issues within high IQ groups go far deeper than the image projected at one conference in Phoenix. The issues are cooked right into the history of the organization itself and into the very idea of a society based on a single biased test. So listeners, obviously, I did not shut down Firehouse, and I didn't even successfully require that members of the planet's premier high IQ society do not threaten to kill each other. But I did meet them like they asked, and it made me think more about what the root cause of a group like this could be. And if you've been listening since the beginning, you've heard this before. Mensa has three stated purposes in its constitution. Quote, to identify and foster human intelligence for the benefit of humanity, to encourage research into the nature, characteristics, and uses of intelligence, and to provide a stimulating intellectual and social environment to its members. And after this year, I feel confident in saying that the group as a whole does not live up to these three tenets. The most active forum in the entire organization is essentially a 4chan board. Seeing children who are being told from a very young age that they are fundamentally smarter and better than the kids around them in a permanent, unchangeable way is deeply unsettling. The whole group is founded on the idea that taking one test makes you an unquestionable genius, a fact that has been repeatedly disproven and wasn't even the intent of the person who invented the IQ test in the first place. I think, and trust me, no one in Mensa gives a fuck what I think, but I think that Mensa could possibly be salvaged as an organization if its leaders actually committed to this constitution above protecting communities with high social media engagement that they like talking shit in, and instead considering how these communities got so shitty and toxic to begin with. The first and third tenets of this constitution feel connected an emphasis or even a requirement for more community service and value to people who aren't in Mensa could yield a lot of positive growth and prioritizing healthier community options and the physical safety of existing members would as well. But what really sticks with me is Mensa's complete non-commitment to its second tenant, to encourage research into the nature, characteristics, and uses of intelligence. Firehouse is a symptom of many things in the organization and in the country, but I believe the failure to uphold this promise and the insistence of hanging on to a toxic online community are very connected. Any organization that ascribes to a fixed IQ model cannot claim it's encouraging research into the uses of intelligence because its own requirement intentionally misunderstands the work of the man who created the IQ quotient to begin with. And resting on this assumption of superiority without any requirement to demonstrate things like learning, effort, or value to others is arrogant at best, dangerous at worst, 
And if you're wondering if you should join, it's way too slippery a slope to be worth participating in. The creator of the IQ test himself, Alfred Binet, would not fuck with it. So, to literally no one's disappointment, I'm done with Mensa. I'm logging out of the goddamn group, and I would not recommend joining a group with a fixed intelligence model to anyone, especially kids. I do hope that the community in real life and online and all the in-between spaces are willing to look at themselves and consider what could be accomplished if doing literally anything else was treated with the same passion and intensity of protecting the right to threaten and harass people. Maybe with the right leadership, that might be possible. I hear some of these people are, are pretty smart. And I understand that there's no overstating what a community can do for someone who, as many members described to me, felt like misfits in their everyday lives and want to feel that they belong somewhere. People who feel that they don't belong absolutely deserve community, but a society with murky goals whose selling point is superiority is not a healthy place to find it. And if you don't believe me, I invite you to Google the recruitment techniques of, of virtually any hate group or cult. Bottom line, if you can't reconcile the person you are online with the person you are in real life, something in your community has gone wrong. We've seen it happen more and more frequently in even more politicized groups like 8chan, and while this large portion of Mensa isn't inciting violence, it is inciting politicized hate that many in the group members' lives wouldn't have been aware of in real life. And I don't claim to be perfect in this separation. We've all got our shit to get through when it comes to separating your internet self from your real self. You know, no one's as happy as they perform that they are online and other things you've heard a million times. But to be unrecognizable to anyone you know and love is something to be reckoned with. One thing I did feel challenged by throughout the Mensa disaster was evaluating the satirical, slutty character that wanted to take down Mensa with the person I actually am, who was then a person standing in a boiling hot hotel room of angry people from Mensa. And I'll admit, claiming an online persona, even when it's part of my job, can be a delicate balance when others don't always know whether to take it at face value or not. What I know for sure is that I am never waking up at 6am on a Sunday for a joke ever again. So, to conclude, if your group is silencing people they don't agree with or like, you're not an unmoderated group. If you're a person whose loved one would not recognize who you are online, that's alarming. And if you've been told you're superior to other people forever, no follow-up or responsibility, that's laying the groundwork for some serious unchecked supremacy. And finally, I can't stress this enough, if you're planning a summit in Arizona during July, it's actually very fucking hot there and you might not be as smart as you think you are. It is still kind of funny that I got in though. All right, thank you for listening. Thank you to everyone who helped me put this together. Thank you to Sadie Dupuis, who did our amazing theme song. Voices featured in this episode are Miles Gray, Anna Hosnier, Caitlin Durante, Jaquis Neal, and Robert Evans. Thank you to my friends. I look forward to never talking with you about this again. I have a weekly podcast with Caitlin Durante called The Bechdel Cast. Feel free to listen to that into infinity. It comes out on Thursdays on iHeartRadio. You can follow me online at at Jamie Loftus Help on Twitter, where I will never be posting a screenshot ever again, or at Jamie Christ Superstar on Instagram. In the meantime, goodbye forever. 
Looking for a fabulous fashion brand that celebrates you? Then look no further than Boston Proper, where styles are designed with you in mind. So you can look and feel amazing, no matter the day, season, or occasion. At bostonproper.com, you'll find fashion that knows you best. For over 30 years, Boston Proper has been the fashion destination for confident women who want to elevate their look with unique, sophisticated clothing at affordable prices. Visit bostonproper.com today. Boston Proper. Wear it like no one else. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.